Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. I'm Howard Passy, and it's a pleasure to be joined for today's episode by Lewis Ramsey, caretaker manager at BAFE and former Deputy Chief Fire Officer at Scottish Fire and Rescue. For today's podcast, we will examine the key issues and areas to consider when looking at fire risk management in buildings that are occupied by vulnerable persons, i.e. those who may not have the capacity to identify fire risks or evacuate safely themselves without assistance. In these buildings, it's clearly crucial to have appropriate fire safety measures in place that ensure occupants are cognizant of the premises layout, construction and features and their safety assured. Lewis, it's great to have you here today to speak with me on this issue and thanks very much for for taking some time um, aside to to chat with us. It's a real pleasure, Um, Howard. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, Before we crack on, I just wanted to start by setting the scene a little. Um, We know the devastating consequences that fires cause in buildings occupied by vulnerable people, regardless of the nature of their vulnerability, and this includes hospitals, schools and care homes, etc. We only have to look at the Rose Park Care Home fire, which we'll touch on later to see that. As a former fire officer and now somebody engaged in the certification and governance fields, what are the specific risks in buildings of these kinds and how does this differ from other building types? Well, you know, Howard, it's, it's quite interesting you raising Rose Park and, you know, and I think back in my career and think, well, that took up the best part of 10 years of my career. So almost a third of my career was spent with the outcomes of Rose Park. And I think you're right to reference that as a, a point in space and time mm-hmm. uh, regarding, you know, the protection of vulnerable people. And, and what I would say from my dealings with Rose Park and a whole range of other high-risk buildings, I would say that, you know, there's probably quite a wide range of very obvious risks, but equally I would say there's some less obvious or hidden issues, and and, and I think those are the the, the key elements for people to consider. And, you know, so even if I can run through saying that the, the age of the building and its history in terms of renovations or any repurposing that's went through over the years, I think is quite important and crucial to take into account. And, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I've just mentioned older buildings, that, you know, there's risks associated with new builds, particularly round about the modern methods of construction that we see and and some of the issues that are associated with their, their, their construct, you know, and, and how that's been policed, I think, is a, a key and, and, and important risk. Um, no doubt, you know, you did mention you, you ran through quite a few different types of building and that, that's clearly important. Um, and I think that if I was to say to you today and your listeners, for me, um, both as someone that served in the service, at the, the, the kind of 
the, the response end and now dealing in the fire sector more with the prevention and the protection end, I would say that the type of resident overlaid with the type of property is a multiplying effect on risk. So in other words, if you get vulnerable people in a poor quality building, then the, the risk is just growing exponentially. Uh, and I'm sure somebody far more intelligent than, than I am would perhaps be able to quantify in that in some way. But, you know, I, I think that's the key issues here as to uh, are things associated with human factors. And, and no doubt you'll want to explore that a little bit more. But those things make um, management on a day-to-day -day basis difficult. They make evacuation difficult. They make the rescue difficult. And so I think planning is absolutely essential. I think the use of any systems in the building is paramount. And I think you've really got to monitor that and review it. You can't sit in your hands once you've done it. You know, it's a, a live thing that has to be nurtured through the, the, the kind of life cycle of the building and the people within it. So I think, you know, for me, that that's the type of risks. And of course, you, you mentioned how does that differ from other buildings? Well, you know, that that's true of all sorts of buildings out there and I, my only kind of response to that is from a fire risk assessment perspective you know uh, one day you could be risk assessing a small shop in the high street and the next day you're in a very very complex building so it does differ uh, and you need to be cognizant of that and you need to apply yourself to the different um findings within buildings of risk i would say Howard. I think you're absolutely right. There, there are some, you know, some very obvious risks, and there, then there are the less obvious. Um, clearly, the the vulnerability of occupants um, feeds into that somewhat, um, and and has to be a key consideration. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right to make reference to the fire risk assessment and fire risk assessor. Um, I know we'll, we'll we'll be touching on competency issues a little bit later on, but um, you know, clearly the drive towards improved competence. Um, in all those people involved in design, construction, build, um, and management of buildings will will have a part to play in that. But um, I'm not always sure that in circumstances where um, you may have the less obvious risks or you may have the more significant issues to deal with, that the fire risk assessor necessarily has the tools to be able to deal with them. Um, as you say, jumping from a, you know, a small shop one day to doing something far more higher risk is, you know, is 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 incredibly difficult to do and, and does require a different competency level and a, a different understanding. Um, and whilst there's good guidance that deals with healthcare premises, for example, you don't find the same level of detail always when it comes to, to looking at care home premises. No, absolutely. Yeah, so bearing in mind that there are highly specific factors that will apply to any individual premises and the type and vulnerability level of the residents. Um, it's clear that all of those factors will have a, you know, will have a huge effect. Um, you we just touched on fire risk assessment. What, what do you think this means in terms of the fire risk assessment process and what needs to be considered to ensure that an adequate evacuation or fire safety plan is in place? Therein lies the rub, I suppose, and there's been hot debate about that of late. But I suppose if, if I was to boil it down to, for me, the vulnerability applies to, um, I would say it applies to the people, it applies to the places, and it applies to the building. So we often talk about vulnerable people in it, and, and you know, I'm not detracting from the importance um, that we must place on the people within the buildings. But I think, too, that you have to look at the building itself and ask yourself, is that vulnerable? through a number of mm. issues that might pop up. And I think you would look at the place and the environment and ask yourself, is that vulnerable too? 
So the person creating the plan needs to apply themselves to all three, in my opinion. You can't just look at people in isolation. You can't look at the building in isolation. You can't look at the environment in isolation. You need to look at all three. And I think you've got to blend that um, and take a kind of blended approach to both a person-centric risk assessment and a, mm-hmm. a premises-focused risk assessment. So there's no point just risk assessing the person in isolation or the building isolation is what I'm saying. And I think if you do those things, um, you know, you, you, you're giving your chan- yourself a really good, decent chance of succeeding and writing a good, wholesome, sufficient and, and you know, realistic risk assessment. I, I've often, um, you know, in my previous role, when I headed fire safety enforcement, regulation, all these good things, you know, I used to talk about data sharing and information exchange and, and you know, single shared assessments. And, and I was probably guilty of using those phrases to form a better picture and a more holistic view of risk and not fully understanding how difficult it is at times just to obtain the information and use it appropriately. So it's a wee bit of a team effort. And I think a fire risk assessor to get it right and get the plan right has to consult a wide and varied degree of expertise around them. Uh, and I think to fail to do that and recognise your own limitations is, is is setting yourself up to fail in regards to the plan that you develop. Mm, yeah, I know that, you know, I fully agree with you, you know, the reflect sometimes on on some of the training that i've i've delivered in the past and 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 looking at the fire risk assessment process and um i really start by not necessarily want to frighten people but introduce them to the complexity that is involved and you know use a simple web diagram really which just shows the various factors either from a risks perspective or from a control perspective um and look at the linkages between them all and 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 suddenly you realize that there is an awful lot to consider um and and in much the same way as you know you're considering vulnerability from a slightly different perspective not necessarily just the um the physical or cognizant um abilities of the of the of the individual but also the type of the building, um, their location within the building, because somebody who is maybe frail and lives on the second floor of a two-storey building may be quite capable of evacuating themselves down a single flight of stairs and out of the building. But if you put them on the eighth or ninth floor, um, suddenly their vulnerability is something which has to be considered in a in a very different way than than you would have done um, would have done previously. Um, so you mentioned earlier your. I suppose your engagement and your role and the length of time you spent looking at um, the the Rose Park care home fire and I, and I also understand that you you attended the incident as well and what I don't really want to do is open a massive can of worms for you and ask you a question that could take you you know best part of uh, four or five days to distill but um, it was found that the fire could have been prevented had an adequate fire plan been in place which identified risks and factors such as the need for staff training. Um, but what do you think are the principal lessons that, that that tragic incident has taught us about the need for a proper evacuation plan, evacuation strategy and um, and fire safety management? You're spot on with that, the need to plan. And I think that um, that was one of the key lessons. And you're right, you know, I spent a hell of a lot of time dealing with Rose Park and, and then ultimately introducing the sheriff principal's determination uh, because there was recommendations made. But... I would say that, that that's the key issue around the plan, you know, notwithstanding some of the other issues, and you could speak about those for days on end, but I think you have to understand the the, the needs of the residents and you need to cater fully for them in, in regard to the plan. 
Uh, and the building itself must act as intended or designed. One of the things, I remember very, very early on with Rose Park, and you're, you're thinking, how could this possibly happen? And mm. I'd love to say that that was unique to Rose Park, but I thought the same at the Glasgow School of Art. I thought the same at the Victoria Nightclub fire. Mm. I thought the same at Waddle Court when I had to evacuate a full multi-storey flat. You know, you think, why is this spreading beyond the room of origin? It was not designed to do so. So I would say that, you know, you have to, you have to really develop a plan that will override any systems that um, you rely on and could fail. So it has to it has to really go beyond um, what you could expect and really implement a way to deal with what could happen. Uh, and you need to plan for the worst, and that's how you remain resilient. And I think that's what you would be saying with the plan. I think it gives responsible people, accountable people, they, they need to be given a plan and they need to take ownership of it. Mm. Uh, you know, for me, it would be criminal if that plan is created, stuck in a lever arch file and stuck in an office for somebody to look at once a year. They really need to be on top of the plan and they need to test it and they need to ensure that, you know, for them it'll work because going back to my earlier responses, it's about people, environment, and the building. And if any one of the three things change, then the plan's useless. So I think you really need to keep it under review and you need to make sure that it's, it's, it's pretty robust. I think you're absolutely right. You've got to plan for the worst case, um, regardless of what you might find in terms of, um, you know, systems and equipment and management and such like, because these things can so quickly change. Um, you know, found from my own experience, it only takes um, the loss of an individual who, you know, may have been um, an absolute part of the, the facility for so many years um, and takes with them an awful lot of knowledge when they leave that suddenly things start to fall apart. But, you know, also and probably more sadly, the, the number of occasions when you do find that the fire risk assessment and the fire strategy and the evacuation plans are literally taken by the, uh, you know, by the responsible person or the building manager, um, and they think it's job done. Um, yeah, it's filed yeah. away, and they never look at it again. Uh, and you may go back a year or two years later to review it, and you say, "Well, how have you got on with these recommendations?" And there's a, you know, an embarrassed look and a scratching of heads, and um, yeah. you know, you find that nothing's actually moved forward, which is a, which is a real shame. Um, but if we move on a little and, and look at some of the specifics, I, I think it's clear that. You know, even just from the, the discussion so far, that the, the task for the building manager is is really quite a complex one. But do you think there are any key identifiers for them um, in, in the approach they take to assessing mm. the occupants of the building and whether they're vulnerable in the event of a fire or not? And and sort of a secondary question, how, how might this differ across building types, for example, in a care home or in a school? I wouldn't envy someone's task being a building's um, manager I really wouldn't I think it's I think it's it's going to be difficult for them uh, I, you know I I tip my forelock to them I think they're doing a really good job anyone that takes it on and, and hopefully and with you know a good fair wind in their sails they'll do a cracking job of it but they need support and, mm. and for me that's that's the kind of watchword today I would say that um, take counsel if in doubt you know and that's a very practical response to your question but you know that's the, that's a key issue, and I, I I say that to a lot of people in the fire risk assessment world that are starting out in a career. You know, it's it's okay not to know the answer, and it's 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 expected to to seek an answer that suits your your situation. I think 
that you've got to be careful when defining vulnerabilities. Um, and and I, I would say that that makes sure that's you know a commonly understood position that you're in mm. for the building. Um, and you agree that definition. So we talked a bit about um, premises type earlier on and age and such like. And 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 clearly that's a, a a really important factor, and and I think we you know we've probably both seen um, in so many occasions that you know residential care premises, for example, or even hospitals aren't necessarily built for purpose; they are converted from you know yeah. converted from something else. But given the opportunity to build something new, what do you think the building safety manager's primary considerations would be um, when considering the construction of a of a new premises? I mean that that's that's a great question, but you know, and and I, I and I often wonder about the blank canvas approach and what what would you do? But I I guess that you know without kind of diving straight away into the obvious, it's it's one of these things just now that I mean it's subject to quite a bit of hot debate and, and people have their own views and what constitutes a good safe space and a safe mm -hmm. place for people. You know what I would say? I would say people deserve to live and work in safe buildings. Right? They, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an odd thing to even have to say because it's such an expectation. But, you know, I've been involved in a lot of things recently where, you know, folk are designing all sorts of complex policies and, and I always say to them, well, what's the point of this? Why are you having to write this risky policy? The building should be safe in the first instance. Mm. You know, so you're 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 compensating for a poorly built building. That's just rubbish, yeah. nonsense. But then again, I live in a real world, and there's a practical approach. So I suppose that you know I can take a utopian view. But at the end of the day, the building stock is what it is, and it's going mm -hmm. to take a long time to resolve that. But I would say the first thing that I would advise is that you know you've got to work in the premise that if a person wants to evacuate, then that's their choice. You know, irrespective of you know, whether the premises have a stay put policy in place and have been designed in that manner. Mm. If somebody wants to leave, then you know, that's up to them and you, you need to provide a means to facilitate that, I suppose. Mm. And and I think that um, there are issues around evacuation. Uh, and, and for me, the building fails if there's no means to support evacuation. Um, mm. And I think that whilst you're talking about new builds in, in existing premises, that's really difficult, you know, really difficult. I, I yeah. can't think of a tall building in my experience. And I, you know what? I served in probably the highest density of high-rise buildings in Western Europe at one point. Mm. And I'm racking my brains and I can't think I've ever seen a refuge in any of those buildings for disabled <laughs> people. I just haven't. So yeah. I can't, can't claim to have seen such a thing. So... Clearly, that type of thing incorporated into new designs where people can feel safe and have confidence in the structure would be important to designers. Um, I think that, um, you know, over the years, Howard, I've swayed between my preference for active systems and passive systems. And <laughs> can I get to an age now where I can see that both have a really, really big part to play in keeping buildings safe and Indeed. And, you know, I think if you're designing it, you've got to design in both and and make sure that they're suitable and, and they'll do the job for that particular building. So I think, um, you know, things like compartmentation, I, I've seen almost brand new buildings just now that maybe a building manager would feel confident to occupy. But I've seen 
almost brand new buildings and the compartmentation in them is, is dreadful. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. we, you know, we need to make sure they things are absolute sacrosanct. You know, that that they're not up for a, a vote. The compartmentation's there, and it should be resilient, and it should do its purpose. And I. And whilst I said I can see the value in active as well as passive systems, I don't think we can install active systems because we know the passive systems are no use. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I think we need to balance it carefully. And I would be encouraging building managers to do that. Um, I, th- I think I would say that overall, a building manager needs to ensure that the measures that are taken um, to to safeguard all residents and occupants within the building i think they need to be quite dogged about that and make sure that whatever's there in place um the provision of good compartments solid compartments good active systems good management systems for the building a good strategy for the building i think they need to be really hell-bent in ensuring that's nothing short of excellent and you know and i think overall if people need to leave that building because there's been a fire or whatever, another type of emergency, then they've got a good way of doing it, mm. uh, which won't be compromised. And so I, I think, you know, I'm kind of wondering about over this subject because I think it's massive. It's one of these things we could debate for hours, but mm. a good wholesome building, um, good strategy to to support the, the, you know, the intrinsic integrity of the building uh, and a good management structure to wrap around that. Um, which at times is person-focused is what's required. Earlier on, you made reference to the importance of getting the right balance of uh, active and passive fire safety systems in a building to support the safety of uh, of the individuals that are in there. Um, clearly, it's not just about getting the, the right systems in place, um, regardless of their nature, but also ensuring that they're fit for purpose, that they're installed correctly, and that any subsequent maintenance and testing is undertaken by an accredited third party, um, as, as I say, as you mentioned earlier. Um, in your experience, what role does third party certification play in prote- protecting vulnerable, vulnerable residents? Well, I, I think it's huge. Um, and, you know, um, you mentioned that the introductions of my role with BAFE, and mm-hmm. I'd, quickly, I'd quickly say that Whilst I'm on the BAFE board and I, I, I'm kind of running the, the keeping the, the bus running just now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are other uh, organisations that provide accredited third-party certifications. So there's more than one breakfast cereal is what I'm saying. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not pushing BAFE here, but, um, but I'm pushing with great momentum third-party certification. I think it's it's definitely the way to go. Um, it give, gives me great pleasure when I see it specified within tender documents and what have you, and and the um, uh, organisations will look for um, certificates of conformity um, mm-hmm. through an organisation that has third party certification. I think it's absolutely right. I think what it does is it gives the end user a, a high degree of um, uh, confidence that the the quality and competence that they expect is there uh, and, and I, I can't say any more than that um, um howard i i just think that it, it, it has a, an absolute future in helping sustain communities and and building recovery and preventing loss um and i think that um it's not an elitist club it's not a way to simply bring in 
the higher end um, providers. Mm. It's a way to bring in good, honest, competent, and highly performing organisations of all levels. I, and I and I don't think anyone should fear that. So I, I think it's the way. I think it's definitely the way to go. And I'd certainly have no hesitation in looking for a third party certificated company if I was needing any work. I'd love to see it made mandatory. Um, well, I genuinely absolutely. would. Um, yeah, I think that you know so often you see certain organisations, um, those that take their fire safety responsibilities seriously, looking towards uh, third party certification and saying, this is definitely the way forward. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to be working with a number of organisations um, through the FPA that absolutely have that approach. Um, and and they expect in the, in the consultancy work that we do for them for advice and guidance in that direction. So who should we use? Now, you know, we don't recommend any particular organisations, but we can point them towards the right certification schemes. And you know, also as an organisation, certainly for the, the the life safety fire risk assessments we do, um, we are you know we are a BAFE SP two hundred five certified company, and we'll come on to that in a bit more detail in in a few moments. The the difficulty I often see is it's often those organisations that maybe don't necessarily want to play ball and do the right thing that are going to balk at the use of third party certification or certified products and services. And I think the best way of overcoming that would be to make it mandatory. I, I know that flies in the face of, you know, so many principles, but at the same time, if it were to become the norm and everybody needed to adopt it, I think we'd see, you know, much safer built environment, fortunately. Um, but then, you know, stepping on, I mentioned BAFE SP205 and you've mentioned your role in in, in relation to to working with BAFE currently. Um, and the, 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 the SP205 certification scheme I mentioned a few moments ago is specifically for life safety fire risk assessment. And it pro provides a route for assessment providers to show through certification their competence to undertake a, a suitable and sufficient assessment and assure to a degree that responsible persons that appropriate advice is being offered and that in that respect their legislative duties are being met. Um, what criteria do fire risk assessors need to consider when demonstrating independent evidence of competency? Do you think there are other routes to doing so? Well you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of very thoughtful about this particular area just now because you know you I think it mentioned in, in earlier that you know I also chaired FireQual, the awarding organisation, yep. you know, and and I've been thinking quite a lot about fire risk assessment qualifications. And of course, academic attainment is one step towards proven competence. Yep. But I've got to say that experience is everything. You know, mm. building your experience and vocational attainment to me is extremely important. And that practical side of it is extremely important. Mm. I mean, I, I, I was in fire safety uh, mid-90s, and mm. I can't claim, I've been off the tools that long, I wouldn't like to claim that I could go out and do a fire risk assessment <laughs> tomorrow, I just feel my currency's not there, but I ran the fire safety enforcement in Scotland for over a decade, and I've had a, you know, a real long association with it for long enough to understand what's going on, although I've not been at the coalface very often over the last couple of decades, but in saying that, you know, I, I really do feel that, you know, to, to kind of I use that to illustrate my point. You need to be active in the the sector, and you need to be demonstrating, you, you know, your 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 own point, and you've been maintaining your level of experience. And I think that's really really important. Um, I mean, 
the things I would also say is I, I sometimes worry about the level of experience and ergo competence within uh, the fire risk assessment world. Mm. Um, it's a real mixed bag, you know. There's some really cracking people out there and they do great work and I, I'm not trying to dismiss that, but there's also, as we've seen, and um, the, the facts speak for themselves, there are a lot of people whose fire risk assessments are not up to scratch. Mm. They are sadly lacking. Uh, and we we really need to do something about that. A lot of the fire risk assessors just now in the sector, um, their, their skills and experience have been obtained secondhand. You know, they've retired from the fire service and mm-hmm. they found themselves operating in the sector. And, and hey, that's well and good. And the, the brilliant guys, I, I get it. I'm not trying to criticise, but they're almost coming up for retirement age again. Mm. And, and I worry about that talent pipeline and who's popping out it. Mm. And I truly believe the time has come for the sector to create its own apprenticeship scheme. I'd love to get into a school and say, look, who wants a job in the fire sector? And take them from school leaver up to the point of retirement. And that gives the sector its own um, skill base that they can rely on um, for, a, for a long, long time. And, and I think we need to build that competence. You know, it's not just an issue in that fire risk assessment field or fire consultants, oh, fire, fire consultancy field. You know, we see exactly the same in the insurance sector where, um, you know, large insurers are now having to invest heavily in, um, you know, new staff and bringing people in from scratch and giving them the, you know, the training and that background knowledge that they need and, and then finding a route to deployment with with others in support um, and gradually gl- growing their experience and hence competence um, in, in, in the right way. And I think sometimes you often think that, you know, fire risk assessors and fire risk assessment is a is a poor third party. You know, I remember some of the discussions that I had um, almost immediately post Grimfell where certain organisations were positioning themselves for a, you know, a role going forward and the government were asking various groups to sit and discuss different issues. And a conversation with uh, a relatively heated conversation, I was only invited to this particular working group once, I think, as a result of it, but um, quite a heated conversation about um, the the need for particular types of individuals to be working in certain sectors at certain times. And they were trying to promote very hard that the only people that could provide advice and guidance to a building manager um, is a fire engineer. And, and I had to say to them, no, you're, you're absolutely wrong. That's not a fire engineer's role. A fire engineer won't necessarily understand in practical terms the management side of you know, fire safety and, and are probably far too qualified um, not necessarily competent, but qualified to be able to provide the level of assistance that a building owner or occupier needs. And I think when you say that, you know, an apprenticeship scheme for fire risk assessors um, being being the right way forward, I'd, I'd have to absolutely agree with you. I think that that type of work needs to carry um, a lot more kudos than maybe yeah. it does within the fire sector at the moment, because, you know, the breadth and depth of knowledge that a competent fire risk assessor with five to ten years under their belt is able to bring to, um, you know, a building owner, a building occupier is is extensive and far more than somebody, you know, potentially with a fire engineering degree. And I'm saying that as somebody has who has a fire engineering degree and recognises um, just how beneficial and unhelpful it was at the same time. Um, yeah, I think they need to recognise that there are 
there are certain skill sets that they need to invest in across the uh, across the country and um, and I think that a scheme somehow that allows fire risk assessors to develop their skills and experience potentially through an apprenticeship scheme is is, is absolutely the right way forward you know a lot I like very much the approach that the Institute of fire safety managers take where they have a tiered yeah. fire risk assessor in there they're they're looking for mentors and people to support yeah. those on yeah. the on the lowest tier again a great you know a great um a great approach i think but um uh you know you can only hope that initiatives of this nature really take off and 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 and, and we see some real movement um forward on on this kind of issue um I'd like to finish just with a, a, a look towards the future, if we can. Um, what legislative measures and regulations do you think will be taken in the next five years to ensure vulnerable people never face another tragedy like Rose Park fire? We, we've talked a bit around the Building Safety Bill and the changes in legislation that we're seeing coming forward, and, and clearly their focus is on high rise and high risk to a certain degree. But do you think there's more that needs to be done in terms of the those that are vulnerable in our society and keeping them safe? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a an interesting question and one that I was asked not that long ago. And I said, well, my instinct is that I'm not a big fan of legislating for the sake of it. I think mm. it just makes things awful cluttered. And, and what I would say, Howard, I think the fire sector landscape is one that's cluttered at best. You know, it can, <laughs> absolutely. It can, you know, and, and confused you will be. So I think we need to declutter it a wee bit and simplify it and and make the routes to competence much much easier. And mm. and you know, so I suppose I'm kind of dancing about the question here because again, I've, I've kind of said this earlier. But my, my my heart says there's something there that needs to be done in order to strengthen the requirements, but my head says the sensible way to do it is make sure that you've got a well-supported, resourced and competent sector that's suitably monitored and and supported throughout. And I think that, that to me, is, is what's needed. I, I, I get sometimes get a bit upset when I, I think the neglect within the fire sector. There's some really great bodies in the fire sector just now some really fabulous wisdom yeah. you know i think about the fire sector federation i know that i'm kind of pushing one but anytime i've sat in that i thought this is a forum that can really achieve mm. and it, it, it really it it just needs the the, the kind of launch pad to do that and, it, it, and i just worry that the fire sector is is kind of largely forgotten until there's something um, mm. important happened uh, or, or mm. something tragic happened so for me I, I don't know that legislation isn't really my instinct it's not my touchstone but I definitely think that we need to strengthen guidance there needs to be um, the fire service has a role to play and I'm not trying to diminish that role having served there for long enough I wouldn't dream mm. of doing such a thing but I think the fire sector can be more reliant on its own knowledge and skills and can almost regulate itself in some occasions. Uh, and I, th I think it's more than capable of doing that. I think we need to really take a look at decluttering the landscape, is what I would say. I think we need to make it easy for good people to excel in this sector. And I think we just need to create the conditions for any new law to have a, a good chance of survival. We've touched on this um, on this issue in you know in in previous podcasts and and, and concerns around um, you know bringing in a 
a plethora of a significant additional legislation making further revisions to um, existing legislation, introducing new legislation to try and simplify or to um, address some of the problems that you know maybe aren't as clear to everybody as they should be or to bring in new requirements. And to me, it, it does concern me to a degree that the, 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 the landscape is cluttered thinking about some of the training that's that's done here you know we're, we're based on the fire service college and, and and i remember speaking to um you know even during the olden days when the fire precautions act was in place and people would come away from a few weeks training here with copies of approved document b and technical um, technical guidance from scotland and the blue guide and the pink guide that was annotated back to front just to enable them to try and make some sense of what the legislation was saying yeah. and also yeah. for other bits of legislation we now have you know collected perceived insights that are written by the fire and rescue service to help them understand how to interpret the legislation so the guidance isn't right the legislation isn't right and it is hugely cluttered and I think what we're heading towards is is more clutter and potentially a you know a two-tier legislative yeah, system yeah. one that deals with this high rise high risk and and then everything else um, yeah. but I well, suppose we, we we can only see how it plays out yeah and all I would say there is that um, I was heavily involved in the investigation following the death of firefighter Ewan Williamson mm. and he he died in a pub which was smaller than the room I'm sitting in just now. Christ. So it's not always high risk, you know. So No, absolutely. I, th I think we we can't we can't allow risk to be camouflaged by some of the pressing things in our mind these days, you know, and mm. we just need to make sure that moving forward, everyone new to this sector, everyone who's currently operating within it, we're all pulling in one direction and at the end of the day we're making people in places a hell of a lot safer, you know, mm. so that, that would be my only plea. And you don't do that by discouraging people because it's become far too complicated, too costly, and people just don't want to take on the risk. Uh, mm. And I think that's a real shame. I really do. Mm. That's a great place to finish. Um, Lewis, thanks very much for, for joining me today for, for, for our chat and and for offering some incredibly valuable insights on, on this particular topic and several others that we've... Uh, as we've explored different topics. Um, so again, thanks ever so much for joining us today. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. No, no, pleasure's mine, as always, Howard. We also wanted to let you know that the UK's leading fire conference will be taking place this year on the 9th of November. The FPA, Institution of Fire Engineers and the National Fire Chiefs Council will once again join forces to deliver a packed programme on the latest industry trends and tackle future challenges facing all areas of fire safety. Very much hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review.